Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to cover in this audio Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. We are in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. He has met Silas and Timothy, who came back from Macedonia. He's met them in Corinth. He stays in Corinth for 18 months, and then he leaves Corinth, goes by Ephesus, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him, leaves Ephesus and goes back to lands at Caesarea in the Holy Land, and then briefly begins his third journey. That's what we're going to cover in these these verses. We'll start in Acts 18, verse 18. So Paul, having stayed on, that stayed on in Corinth for many days, said goodbye to the brothers and sailed away to Syria. That's Antioch of Syria. That's his home base, his home church where he started. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He met Priscilla and Aquila, if you remember, at Corinth. They were from Pontus, Jews from Pontus. They had been kicked out of Rome because of Claudius', Claudius's Emperor Claudius's expulsion of the Jews. And so he met them in Corinth and took them with him to Ephesus, Ephesus which of course was across the Aegean on the coast of of Asia Minor on the western coast there. He shaved his head, Paul shaved his head at Sincrea because he had taken a vow. Sincrea is the Corinthian port. Corinth was on the western side of the Isthmus of Corinth and Sincrea was on the eastern side so that Corinth apparently had access to the Corinthian Gulf on the west where they could tra- trade with the Italians the, on the and the Romans on the west and on the east they could get access to the eastern Mediterranean, Crete, Cyprus, Phoenicia, Egypt. Corinth was a big deal, a big, very important city. Now, why did Paul shave his head at Sincrea? Well, he had taken some kind of a vow. This shows that Paul could still act like a Jew without requiring requiring keeping the law for salvation, without requiring circumcision for salvation. So he kept some kind of a vow. The Jews would make vows, thank thank offerings they would for special times when God had delivered them or something. Some people speculate that Paul was paid a vow to the Lord because of his having been delivered by Galileo, Galileo in Corinth when the Jews tried to get him in trouble with the legal authorities. Maybe so, maybe not. Nobody really knows. Now notice here concerning this vow, it says... He shaved his head at Sincrea because he had taken a vow. I'm just assuming that he refers to Paul, but it could refer grammatically to Aquila. Aquila could have shaved his head and took, taken a vow. Then I've been studying about, Bible says that's grammatically possible, but that it's more probable that the he refers to Paul because of the context emphasis on Paul and his activities. So I'm going to assume it's Paul. Most people do. Some, the NIV study Bible says this was probably a temporary Nazarite vow, the famous Nazarite vow. You don't cut your hair. You don't drink wine and so forth. This is in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. But Jameson Fawcett Brown said it was not likely a Nazarite vow. The NIV study Bible says different vows were frequently taken to express thanks for de- for deliverance from grave dangers. And from that I speculate that perhaps the danger was at Corinth that Paul was being thankful for having been delivered from. At any rate, it's kind of an interesting little detail that Luke put in there to give us opportunity for speculation. Now let's talk about Paul's friends Priscilla and Aquila. You recall he met them at Corinth. They were fellow tent makers and Paul worked with them making tents so that they would not have to take donations from the Corinthians so that would that not be an obstacle to his ministry so people would not think he was preaching the gospel for profit. 
Now here, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned with the wife's name first, and feminists love to take that and say, see there, Priscilla was the leader in the marriage. This was an egalitarian marriage with Priscilla being the leader. Well, there's a quick answer to that. Verse 2 of this same chapter in Acts 18 says this, where he found Paul, where he, Paul, found a Jewish man named Aquila. Hmm, Aquila's mentioned first, a native of Pontus with his wife Priscilla. So Aquila is mentioned before Priscilla. We're supposed to mean that Aquila was the leader in this non-egalitarian patriarchal marriage? You can't prove anything but who came first. Let me read you some other scriptures. Romans 16.3, the feminists love to quote this one. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila. Priscilla is the diminutive form of Prisca. So the wife is mentioned first. Ah, egalitarian marriage, feminism. So the feminists say. But then we go and and also we read in 2 Timothy 4.19 the same thing. Greek Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is mentioned first. Then in Acts 18.26, which we're going to get to in just a minute. It ha- we have after Priscilla and Aquila. So we see those three verses. Priscilla's mentioned first. The feminists make hay on that. But Acts 18.2 mentions Aquila first. You can't prove anything by that. I mean, I've got some neighbors, Paul and Cindy. I call them Paul and Cindy all the time. And sometimes I say Cindy and Paul. It just depends on how it comes out. doesn't mean a darn thing. Going back to Paul's vow, I failed to mention why did he shave his head because that was the typical way of showing the end of a vow is by shaving your head as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now, why was Priscilla listed first? The NIV Study Bible suggests that it was not just random but that Priscilla was playing a prominent role in helping Paul. The NIV Study Bible says perhaps she had a higher social position than did her husband Aquila. Speculations all. We don't know. Paul is stated here to have stayed many days. So Paul, having stayed on at Corinth for many days, well, does that many days mean after Galileo set him free, which had just happened in our previous audio, previous few verses, or does that include the 18 months during which the trial of Galileo of Galileo occurred? We don't know when that trial was. It could be that the trial was at the very first of Paul's arrival in Corinth. Galileo sets him free, and then Paul stays for 18 more months. Or it could mean that the trial happened in the middle somewhere, and that the total stay of Paul in Corinth was 18 months, with only nine months happening after the trial. I don't know. doesn't matter. We just know that Paul stayed there a long time. We go to verse 19 of Acts 18. When they reached Ephesus, that's Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, when they reached Ephesus, he left them there. Ephesus, of course, is that great town on the western coast of Asia Minor. Logical place to be sailing to. He left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and engaged in discussion with the Jews. Well, let's talk about Ephesus. It was the leading commercial city of Asia Minor, as the NIV Study Bible says. It was the capital of of the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia. It was the warden, it was the keeper of the Temple of Diana, that famous temple. The Romans called it the Temple of Diana, the Greeks called it the Temple of Artemis, same goddess. And I've been to Ephesus, and which is a neat place to go to if you ever get a chance to. I asked the tour guide, I said, where's the famous Temple of Diana? I would like to see it. And she says, no, it's just a tile of pile of rocks off the main tourist highway. It's totally ignored, even by tourists and their guides. Because what happened, it was, they, she said they piled the rocks next to a railway because in the late, 1900, late 1800s, late 19th century, a rich businessman wanted to buy it. 
and started collecting the rocks, packing them up, and getting ready to move them out, and something happened. Either he changed his mind, maybe he went bankrupt. I don't remember what she told me, but she said nobody goes there anymore. I said, darn, how have the mighty fallen? This temple was built by the famous Croesus of Lydia, his capital, Croesus, his capital at Sardis there in Lydia in Western Asia Minor. He built this temple. Of course, Croesus is the king famous for being the richest guy in the world. He was the Bill Gates of his day. It was about 550 B.C. The temple was built. It was destroyed by a madman in 356 and burnt to the ground. And then it was rebuilt thereafter, and it lasted until 262 A.D. when the Goths, believe it or not, the Goths destroyed it. The Goths show up in Greek history. Surprise, it was surprising to me when I read that, but yes, they were wide-ranging, and they destroyed this temple. But that was in 260 A.D. At this time, the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world, and Ephesus was in charge of it. So we see this is a pagan place that Paul's going into. Now, the translation of the Holman Christian Study Bible that I use here seems a little funky to me. When they reached Ephesus, he left them, Priscilla and Aquila, there in Ephesus, but he went into the synagogue seemed kind of like an abrupt contrast between leaving them in, in Ephesus and then he goes into the synagogue. Well, the synagogue was in Ephesus, so it's not that much of a contrast. I like the NIV translation better. They, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And basically what he's saying, he left them off. They got to Ephesus, and he went by himself into the synagogue. And by the way, that shows that not always do apostles have people with them. Paul was alone in Athens reasoning. It's just the circumstances. You know, it doesn't, it's better. He usually traveled with a missionary team. No question about it. He needed fellow workers. But every now and then, because of the stress of events, he ended up being by himself. Now, I don't know why he didn't take Aquila into the synagogue with him, but he didn't. This was apparently for just one Sabbath that he did this, Adam Clark says. Now, in this synagogue, the Holman Christian Study Bible says that Paul engaged in discussion with the Jews. The ESV says he reasoned with the Jews. Well, engaging in discussion, that usually happens when you reason with somebody. You state your position. The other person says, well, if that's true, well, what about this? How do you explain this? Another person says, this is how I explain this. Rational discussion. See, even apostles who see great visions and have mystical visions and trips to the third heaven, even they can engage in reason. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual religion. Notice that Paul's visit to the synagogue was completely in accordance with his practice, his customary practice. Paul always would go to a synagogue first, and then he would go to the Gentiles afterwards. The general pattern was that they would give him a respectful hearing, but as soon as he started talking about Jesus, well, that was the end of that. And then they started giving him grief, starting riots, taking him to the political and secular authorities, the Roman authorities. Well, they didn't do that here. Paul didn't give them enough, enough time, I guess, because he was just stopping off in Ephesus as, on his way back to Syria, to Antioch of Syria. Now, having left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus, this was a good thing for Paul because Aquila and Priscilla would give valuable aid upon Paul's return to Ephesus on the third journey, as the NIV Study Bible points out. That Study Bible says that Aquila and Priscilla probably provided advice to Paul as to how they could start a church at Ephesus and where it could be started and so forth. One small detail before we leave this verse. How long did it take Paul and Aquila and Priscilla to get from Corinth to Ephesus? Jameson Fawcett and Brown says it takes about eight to ten days when you're sailing, assuming the wind is fair. So 
little short journey, relatively short journey. And of course, during these journeys, the apostles, the apostle Paul and his fellow workers, they are talking with each other and they are encouraging one another and they are teaching one another. Those, that time was not lost. We go now to verses 20 and 21. And though they ask him to stay for a longer time, he, Paul, declined. Who's the they? Well, because it's probably the Jews with whom Paul had been reasoning. That's the way I read it. John Gill points out it could be Aquila and Priscilla asked Paul to stay for a longer time, which would make sense. Both of them would make sense, actually. Whoever it was, they asked him to stay for a longer time. He, Paul, declined. But he said goodbye and stated, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Well, God did will it because he came back on the third journey, stayed for two years. Then he set sail from Ephesus, going back to his home stomping grounds of Syrian Antioch. Now, there's an interesting situation here with the King James Version. There is an additional statement that Paul makes, quote, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. In other words, that statement by Paul is supposed to give the reason why he set sail from Ephesus so quickly, because he was in a hurry to get to the feast. But Adam Clark points out lots of manuscripts don't have that little phrase. So it's questionably from a manuscript point of view. The Holman Christian Study Bible does not have it. Now, if this feast that comes, of course, if the King James is right and, the, and Paul is saying, I've got to get back to a feast, that is probably the Passover. Adam Clark and Jameson Foster and Brown say it's definitely the Passover. Gill says it might have been the Passover. But at any rate, if Paul is in a hurry to go to keep a Passover, the question arises, why would a Christian free from the law desire that? Well, I think the simplest answer is it's not in the text. He never said that he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem because of the Passover. Questionable textual authority. But assuming that it is in the text, Galen Clark says that he he wanted to get back to Jerusalem because with all those pilgrims in Jerusalem, that would be a great opportunity to preach the gospel to a great number of people. And that makes sense. Let me insert here a note about the timing of these journeys. The dates are controversial. People give a date here and a date here. They're not off, but about a year or two. They're close. BibleStudy.org, a website I found, said the third journey was the autumn of 52 to the summer of 53. So he's right now at the end of the second journey in the spring of 52 going back. BibleHistory.com has the third journey at 55 uh, two years later excuse me, three years later, 55 to 58. And so there you have it. But we know from about, the earliest date I saw for the first journey was about 44, and the last date for the third journey is 58. So we know it had to be within that period between 44 and 58 that all this was taking place. We go to verse 22 of Acts chapter 18. On landing at Caesarea, he, Paul, went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Now I've always read that verse as Paul greeted the church at Caesarea, and then he left Caesarea and headed back up to Antioch, which was to the north there on the west eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea at the northwest corner of the lake. Now that is an option, as the NIV Study Bible points out, that Paul did greet the church at Caesarea, but the NIV Study Bible suggests, and Gill states affirmatively, and Clark does the same, states affirmatively, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirms also that Paul landed at Caesarea, but then went up from Caesarea to the church at Jerusalem and greeted them, which would make Paul's fourth visit there. That does make sense because Jerusalem is an important church. We don't know so much about the church at Caesarea. That's where the Roman centurion Cornelius was converted, but we don't know. 
Well, we have so much authority saying Jerusalem, so we'll take their word for it and say that Paul went to Jerusalem and greeted the church. And of course, I'm sure what he told them, he said, hey, look at all these Gentiles that are coming into the kingdom. It's not just Jews, guys, Gentiles also. Even as Paul, Peter did in Acts 11 when he left Cornelius' house at Caesarea and went back to Jerusalem and said, hey, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Adam Clark speculates uh, as for time that this landing at the end of the second journey was 21 years after his conversion, which would put it, he was converted roughly in eighty thirty or so. This would put it in the early 50s. I can't be more precise than that. We go now to verse 23 in Acts 18. Now, there is no mention of what Paul did in Antioch after he got back to Antioch. Immediately, he starts on the third journey. So now we have the beginning of the third journey right here. And after spending some time there in Syrian Antioch, he, Paul, set out, traveling through one place after another in the Galatian territory and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, Galatia and Phrygia are two well-known provinces of Asia Minor. If you will look at a map of present-day Turkey, right smack dab in the middle of that Anatolian landmass there, you will see Galatia, just to the west of the Halis River, and then you will see Phrygia right to the west of Galatia. Both of them are in the middle. Now, the Galatian region would basically cover Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Piscinian, Antioch. Piscinian, Antioch is right in the area of Phrygia. And in that central region, there's basically talking about, Paul is basically talking about the churches he established on the first journey. So he went back. And again, that shows the pattern of the apostles. They didn't just, he's already strengthened them once. If you recall, on the first journey, he established them and then doubled back and went through and strengthened them. Strengthened them. And then on the beginning of the, of, this, of the second journey, he went through those cities again, strengthened them. And now, at the beginning of the third journey, he goes back through again and strengthens them. So he didn't just... He didn't just birth the babies and leave them there. He parented them. He helped them. He discipled them and encouraged them. So apostles, once again, apostles didn't just establish churches. They strengthened churches. All right, so Paul's going from one place to another. When he left this time, Jameson Foster and Brown speculates that he might have thought that he never was going to return to Syrian Antioch. Maybe so. On this third journey, Paul established the weekly collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Now about the collection for the saints. You should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. This is where he is now. He's wandering through Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collections will need to be made when I come. Now, it's not mentioned here by Luke in this chapter, but we know from the next chapter that Timothy and Erastus went with Paul. Timothy, of course, had met Paul back in Corinth, I suspect that he had come back on the ship. Perhaps, I don't know. On the other hand, you would think, well, why didn't Luke mention him? I don't know. These other uh, helpers of Paul kind of pop in and out of the narrative here and there because Luke was not mainly concerned with them. He was mainly concerned with Paul. But at any rate, Timothy's with him on the third journey. A guy named Erastus, Aristarchus, he was from Thessalonica. He he accompanied Paul in the third journey, as we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and then the famous Titus, who's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. So Paul starts out with some, some help. How does he strengthen these churches? John Gill says he fortifies their minds against temptation. He encourages them to bear the reproach and persecution of men. We go now to verse 24 of Acts 18. Now what we're going to do here is we're going to pop back. Luke is going to stop 
talking about the third journey, and he's going to go back to Ephesus where Paul had passed through and was way back home after the second journey. And we're going to see some goings on in the church at Ephesus. In verse 24 in Acts 18, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian and eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. Now, Alexandria is the most is a very famous city in Egypt on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. Rome was first, Alexandria second, and Syrian Antioch, where Paul was from, was number three. Alexandria had a large Jewish population. In fact, there often were pogroms, riots against the Jewish population. It shows up in secular history. You read the Jews were always taking it on the chin. In fact, right before the Jewish War, which happened in AD 66, right before the Jewish War, the Jews got wiped out in some kind of a persecution by the Alexandrians. It was always happening. This city was called Alexandria, by the way, because it was named after Alexander the Great, who established the city. It's also famous because of its famous library there. I think it was more than one. One of them got burnt. But there was much, much intellectual activity there. We would not even know Aristotle's name if it wasn't for all the scribes who took Aristotle's work and Plato's work and wrote them down and kept the manuscripts and so forth. And so Apollos is, is from there. He's eloquent. It makes you wonder, if, since he's from Alexandria, was he not trained in all the intellectual goings-on of the day? In rhetoric, maybe, and maybe that's why he was so eloquent. We don't know. It does show, though, it does suggest that God can use people's native gifts and backgrounds like he used Paul. Paul was a very learned man in the Jewish scriptures. He also knew Greek stuff, too. He, he quoted Greek writers a lot, several, four times that I can think of. And so he, he was that way, and so was Apollos. Nothing wrong with being educated, folks, even though most of the people who were getting saved were not educated because most educated people are snits arrogant. I, as an ex-college professor, I've, I've seen this. I know what I'm talking about. People think they get a little bit of learning and pretty soon they think that they're, they're God's gift to mankind. But that doesn't mean that all educated people were not used and could not be used in the gospel. Apollos was probably very educated, eloquent man. Strange that he had a Greek name. He was a Jewish guy, but he, he had a Greek name. Adam Clark speculates that his parents were Greek named his son, named their son Apollos, and then converted to Judaism after he already had his name, and they didn't change his name. I mean, Apollos, Apollos is the name of a heathen god. Very, very strange there, but doesn't matter. God will take heathens and use them to preach the gospel. We go now to chapter 18 of Acts, verse 25. This man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately although he knew only John's baptism. So it wasn't that Apollos was teaching things wrongly, it's just that he was not teaching things thoroughly because he didn't know everything, which goes to show that, hey, you don't know everything about the Bible, you don't know everything about Jesus, you can still preach the gospel. Kanye West, he knows very little about the Bible, I'm sure, but he's out there preaching the gospel, making the headlines, and God bless him for doing it. Well, Apollos was the same way. He needed to be instructed, and of course it's very important when you got young Christians out there Teaching, evangelizing, they need to get grounded in the Word. And Aquila and Priscilla helped ground Apollos in the Word, as we'll see in a minute. John's baptism was all that Apollos knew. What's the differences with Christian baptism? This is all from the NIV Study Bible, which gives a good summary here of the differences. John's baptism was not done in the name of Jesus. John's baptism was based on repentance, not faith in the finished work of Christ. That's the difference. So Apollos apparently didn't understand 
how Jesus had forgiven us for our sins. He understood that we needed to repent so to prepare the way for the Messiah, kind of like John the Baptist did. But he didn't understand about forgiveness of sin, and so Aquila and Priscilla, in the next verse, will explain to him things a little bit better. It's ironic that, that Apollos was in the same boat that the disciples at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, 1 were, these 12 disciples who had not heard of the Holy Spirit when they believed. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't realize they had been regenerated of the Holy Spirit. And they certainly didn't know about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Paul, of course, explained all that to them. We'll take that up in the next chapter. We go now to Acts 18, verse 26. He, that's Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Boldly. Now, why does it take boldness to speak in the synagogue? Well, you recall that the Jews were particularly nasty dealing with people preaching Jesus. I mean, look, Paul had discovered this. We've already talked about it many times in Acts. I think they stirred up the Jews from, where was it, from Pisidian Antioch, followed him to Iconium, followed him to Lystra. On the first journey, giving him a bunch of grief, they stirred up against him in trouble against him in Thessalonica and also in Corinth. So everywhere he went, the Jews were after Paul. And so, no, you preach Jesus in a Jewish synagogue, you're you're asking for trouble. And Apollos did not care. He was a brave man and did it anyway. Now, notice that Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos in the synagogue. They didn't challenge him in the synagogue. They didn't say, wait a minute, you hadn't told the whole story here yet, Apollos. They took him home. They didn't take notice of Apollos' errors, or omissions, I should say. Errors is too strong a word, because he was preaching accurately, just not sufficiently. They took him home to teach him more. They didn't want to discourage him publicly. And that's a discouraging thing to have somebody challenge you publicly and make you look bad. This is a good note application point for those who think they have to stand up and denounce a preacher every now and then this does happen now of course the problem is is most preachers today get up and they proclaim as if speaking ex cathedra like a pope instead of saying hey you gotta if you see anything differently here disagree with me fine raise your hand talk church i'm going to now the pastor does that all the time and then every now and then people start to talk and in house churches of course oh my goodness everybody's always talking and say well, what about this scripture what about this scripture but it's done in a context of love and support, not you're a fool. You left something out. You're a fool. You made a mistake. You don't do that. Now, the fact that Aquila and Priscilla were enabled or had the ability to correct Apollos and to teach him further, not correct him really, but to instruct him further, was they had been associated with Paul for quite a while now, working with him in Corinth, tent making and working in the church. It's no wonder they knew enough to instruct Apollos. Now, notice that Priscilla was in on the instruction of Apollo. Apollos. Here's a quote from John Gill concerning that. From hence it may be observed that women of grace, knowledge, and experience, though they are not allowed to teach in public, yet they may and ought to communicate in private what they know of divine things for the use of others. Well, what Gill is referring to is Paul's famous prohibition against women teaching or exercising authority in the church. This is in 2 Timothy 2.12, or 1 Timothy 2.12, I think it is. And this is not what was going on here. Let, let's, let's discuss that now. Priscilla and Aquila explain. All right, so Priscilla was explaining to a man. Oh, the feminists say, see there? P- P- Priscilla explained, and therefore she's teaching Apollos. No, the word is not teach. The word is explain. And even if it did mean teach, notice that it was not in a church context. It was privately, and her husband was present. The main thing, I think, is, is, is the church context. You don't want to show everybody in the church 
that a woman is leading makes the men look like pussy wusses. And in fact, it makes it encourages them to be wussy pusses. They, you know, I can sit back and let my wife do it. And then the men don't perform their God-given duty of leading because it's not easy to lead. And women love to jump into the gap, into the leadership gap and take over. And then you've got a screwed up church. But that's not going to happen if it's, you're sitting around privately talking to somebody. It's not going to hurt anybody's. It's not going to set any bad examples if the woman just, with her husband present, starts talking to the man. I mean, I remember Watchman Nee in China was instructed by a woman missionary privately, not in church, but privately. I don't have any problem with that. Of course not, because, I mean, here we have Priscilla doing the same thing. Although I must say, she doesn't say she taught. She explained. That's not the same thing as teaching. Different Greek word. And it was done with her husband present. Again, outside of church. But at any rate, notice how humble this great intellectual orator Apollos was. He took instructions from lowly tent makers, as Adam Clark points out. And he took instructions from a woman. A lot of men are kind of proud about that. You don't even like to be told anything by a woman. Jameson Foster Brown said, Nor can one help admiring the humility and teachableness of so gifted a teacher in sitting at the feet of a Christian woman and her husband as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. We go to verse 27 in Acts 18, when he wanted to cross over to Achaia. That's talking about Apollos. Achaia is Greek, the Roman province, which is presently Greece. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers wrote to the disciples, urging them to welcome him. Now, back then, of course, you had to have letters of recommendation. You couldn't do a police profile, a police report. You couldn't get on the Internet and search for criminal records and that kind of thing. So... They had to go by letters of recommendation. They were very important in the ancient world. So the brothers there in Ephesus wrote to the disciples in Achaia in Greece, urging them to welcome him. After he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. It doesn't say where in Achaia. I suspect it was Corinth because Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Perhaps there were some Corinthians living in Ephesus who said, Man, Apollos, you can really teach. We need some teaching back here in Corinth. Come over here and teach us. That's speculation. Who were the brothers that wrote to the brothers in Achaia? Who were the Ephesian brothers who wrote to the Achaian Greek brothers, brothers in Greece? Well, Gil says that these brothers would probably include Aquila, and I am I'm adding to that maybe Priscilla too, because the word brothers is a term that includes sisters. I think it's a Delphoi. If you look at that, that word is translated is really technically siblings, but we don't use that word siblings, of course. So. But so when you say brothers, it means brothers and sisters. So it could be Priscilla and Aquila, or it could just be some other brothers, including Aquila, or it could be some other brothers not including Aquila. But anyway, the brothers in Corinth wrote a letter that says, we stand by this dude, Apollos. He can teach you some good stuff. Where did these brothers of Ephesus come from? Well, uh, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there, and I'm sure they were evangelizing while he was gone. Not to mention Apollos. He was evangelizing, too. Not to mention that Paul, on his way out, had spent at least one Saturday in the synagogue reasoning with the Jews. Maybe some of them had gotten saved. We don't know. But at any rate, the wind blows where the wind blows. And we don't know where it comes from or where it's going because the Holy Spirit's working. People are getting saved. Now, this verse says that Apollos greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And I make a slightly cynical remark. Maybe he helped them too much because we read... In 1 Corinthians 1.12, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth later on, he says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. In other words, there were factions 
following behind Apollos because Apollos was such an eloquent preacher of the gospel. Or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Now, notice that it was not Apollos' fault that there were factions developing behind him in Corinth. Paul was not at fault when the Corinthians say, I follow Paul. Cephas, Peter, was not at fault when people say, I follow Cephas. And certainly Jesus wasn't at fault when people said, I follow Christ. No, the factionalism was on the part of the Corinthian believers. It was their fault, not Apollos' fault. So I'm speaking a little tongue-in-cheek when I say he might have helped him too, too much. People love to attach themselves to Christian gurus, the people who, you know, they got British accents and they, and they talk so fluently and elegantly. And the word of God says that Paul wants you to get circumcised in order to believe. And then people say, oh, somebody talking like that must be speaking the truth. So, but anyway, Apollos goes back to Corinth and he says he helped those who had believed through grace. Now, notice how casually that phrase is turned in there. Sure, the Corinthian believers were saved through grace. We know that, but we don't usually talk that way in our rhetoric. We don't say, oh, yeah, the, the believers in Columbia, South Carolina, who were saved through grace. Only Presbyterians do. You take the average Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic. They don't talk about believers being saved through grace. And that's one reason why I don't go to such churches anymore. Even though I believe in baptism by immersion, even though I believe in getting baptized in spirit and speaking in tongues, and even though I believe in free will. I think that we don't emphasize grace enough. But Luke did. He said all those brothers in Corinth were believers through grace. Now notice that, let me, let me read that last part of the verse again. After he, Apollos, arrived, he, Apollos, greatly helped those who had believed through grace. You could read this verse he greatly helped those through grace. He greatly helped those who had believed through grace. In other words, the grace was the grace that was given to Apollos to help. He greatly helped through grace those who had believed. It just depends on where you know what, the Greek word order is kind of loose. You know, you don't necessarily know where prepositional phrases go. So it could be Apollos greatly helped those. He greatly helped through grace those who had believed, or it could mean he helped those who had believed. Through grace. Those who had believed were the ones that believed through grace. Well, I think it's, I think most probably it was the people who believed through grace, not Apollos being helped through grace. Although both, of course, are certainly true. Let me read you a good quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown on this point. One of those incidental expressions is through grace. They believe through grace. This is, quote, one of those incidental expressions which show that faith's being a production of God's grace in the heart was so current and recognized the truth that it was taken for granted as a necessary consequence of the general system of grace, rather than expressly insisted on. In other words, it's, of course he was saved by grace. So we mentioned that, but we're not going to talk about it like it's some strange thing. Verse 28, Acts 18, we move on. For he, Apollos, vigorously refuted the Jews in public. Remember, he's already boldly speaking in the synagogue, and now he continues refuting the Jews in public, again, using, he was a debater. Nothing wrong with debaters in the body of Christ. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this idea of somebody refuting Jews in public and debating with them, in my opinion, balances out a too severe interpretation of certain passages in 1 Corinthians. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Well, isn't Apollos debating? And now Paul is dissing debaters. He's throwing shade on debaters. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? 
Well, now, let's make a distinction here. Paul is complaining about Greek pagan debaters. He's not complaining about Christian debaters who are refuting Jews. Paul would not condemn himself. That's what he did. I've, I've quoted in these audios several times where Paul reasoned with the Jews. He engaged in discussion with the Jews. In fact, right, just right here in this audio, back here in Acts 18, verse 19, but he, Paul himself, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, as the ESV has, or engaged in discussion with the Jews, as the Holman Christian Study Bible has. And so Apollos is picking up right where Paul left off in the, in the Jewish synagogues. He demonstrated through the scriptures he was not arguing in a pagan rationalistic way. He was demonstrating through the scriptures. So again, this is a good point. If you're going to argue, if you're going to debate, base your debate on the scriptures. Not upon human reason. That's a, that, that does become foolish, vain philosophy in a big hurry. Use the scriptures. That's what Apollos was doing. And, of course, the Jews accepted the scriptures as an authority. Now, the word that he refuted the Jews is very strong in the Greek, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says. Oh, let me back up a minute. Let, let's finish what Paul says about debaters. 1 Corinthians 2, 4. Paul says, My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. And we tend to say, oh, he used miracles. Demonstration by the Spirit was miracles. So he did miracles, but he didn't use persuasive words of wisdom. Well, yes, Paul did use persuasive words of wisdom. He did it all the time when he was arguing in the synagogues. But what he meant here is that he did not merely use persuasive words of wisdom. You put that word merely in there, which is understood, and it makes sense. He says, I didn't come in here just talking about philosophy based on reason. I gave, I did miracles. And he could have said, I also used uh, wisdom uh, based on the scriptures because he all the time quoted Old Testament scripture. Nothing wrong, folks, with debating as long as you use the scripture and you do a little few miracles on the side wouldn't help. This word refuting the Jews in public, Jameson Fawcett Brown says the Greek is very strong. Quote, the word means, quote, stoutly bore them down in argument. Ooh, that's a good translation. Here's another way he translates that word. Quote, or they translate the word. Quote, vigorously argued them down. The Greek tense shows continual refutation. Over and over again, he went to the synagogues and he won every time, beating them down. Now, this was done in public, of course, in the synagogues, and John Gill says that this made the shame and embarrassment of the Jews even more acute. They were... They were getting shown up in their own home turf. Now, this bold public manner of the early Christians' witness proves their strong conviction of truth, of the truth of Christ, as Adam Clark says. And Clark, in an anti, in an Islamic phobic, Islamophobic mood, Adam Clark says, "Hey, Muhammad formed a party little by little before he dared to openly proclaim his message. He he did some politics before he did some theology, in other words. But here." The early Christians chose to witness every chance they got publicly and openly, not secretly in the hidden rooms. They didn't go to villages to get the ignorant multitude on their side. They went to important major cities, for example, Caesarea, Antioch, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. Some of those cities are still here today, actually. Salonica is. Athens is. Corinth is. Mm, Ephesus is a tourist site. But, you know, these were big, big, big famous cities, and the, the apostles would go there and preach, and the evangelists and the prophets, the church workers would go there and preach the gospel in public. And in these big cities, you would have the intellectuals who could run you down, who could catch you up in contradictions, the people of power who could threaten you. But these early apostles were not afraid to have their cause tested by the most rigid test of Scripture. 
in a place where the scripture was best understood, where there were more rabbinic scholars, if you will. And in the big cities, where there was more learning, it would make it easier to detect imposters. As Adam Clark says, quote, Hence it is evident that these holy men feared no rational investigation of their doctrines, for they taught them in the face of the most celebrated schools in the universe. Not to mention the fact that the secular power could throw them in jail if they were preaching nonsense defrauding the people. They went and preached against idolatry in Athens, which was overrun with idols. They took the gospel right into the teeth of the enemy. They preached Christ crucified in Jerusalem, where all the Jews hated Jesus, said, no, nah, we don't have, we, there's no such thing as a suffering Messiah. Our Messiah is going to be a king. Not to mention the fact they were desperately trying to absolve themselves of the murder of Jesus. Paul went right in there at the end of the third journey and preached to them again. So, we see a very, very, very brave witness of the gospel in the book of Acts. The application point of that should be obvious as we face things that are that seem pretty overwhelming here in America, but they're not any worse than they were when Paul and his fellow apostles were preaching in the first century A.D. Now, Paulus is going into the synagogues demonstrating something. What? In verse 28 of verse 18, he's demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. That, of course, is the sticking point between Jews and Christians. It was back then, and it is today. Jesus was the Messiah. Now, we see now that Apollos knows much more than just John's baptism. He's getting into Old Testament theology now. So, it's apparent that Aquila and Priscilla's private instruction was bearing much fruit for Apollos. We are now finished with Acts chapter 18. We will turn to Acts chapter 19. We've already seen in this chapter, Paul has just started. He's in the, he ended up in Galatia and Phrygia at the beginning of his third journey. We will continue with the third journey in Acts chapter 19 as Paul makes his way through Asia Minor into Ephesus. hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 